0: We've been kind of going through a, a sermon series that I've entitled How a Soul Feels Their Worth, and we were jumping off of the song, Oh Holy Night, that lyric in that song, while in the world sin and error pining, there was just this longing, this need, it kind of just conveys this, this brokenness, and on that morning... The soul finally felt its worth. The soul understands the lengths to which our Creator would go to reconcile us back to Him. That while we were yet sinners, He did this all for us. In the midst of all this brokenness, God Himself shows up. And that's why that lyric in that song is, for me, very powerful. It really conveys, once you have given your life to Christ, the kind of change that happens—it's like for the first time. That's why Scripture uses the word "born again." We've we've come alive, and God's done that for us. Now we have basically been camped out in Luke chapter one, but because of different services through ad- Advent, we kind of are in it, and then we're out of it, and then we're in it again. So we're going to jump into Luke chapter one, but we're kind of in the midpoint of a story there. That if you missed the service at the end of November, maybe you're confused about what's going on. So just briefly, the background is Elizabeth and Zechariah did not have a child. That's who we're introduced to first in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. This is the couple. Similar to how we're introduced to the couple of Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament that are both, uh, that they too were barren. They had no child. And God begins this story of redemption through this couple. Same kind of motif here in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah and Elizabeth barren. God shows up through His messenger, the angel Gabriel. And He gives them a message that they will have a child. And when they do have this child, they're to give him the name John. And He kind of talks about what John is going to be and do when he's born. And Zechariah, doubting this, when an angel shows up, he he shows that, well, are you sure that's really possible? I mean, my wife's really old, and uh, we're kind of past all that. And so because of that doubt, the angel says, you're not going to speak until it happens. So Zechariah is mute. He comes out of the temple. He was at the temple, if you remember. He's a priest. He's at the temple doing his job. He comes out, and he cannot speak. He went in being able to speak, he comes out unable to speak. So everybody knows, okay, something happened in there, God must be up to something. And so Zachariah and Elizabeth, we heard in Luke 1 verse 5 and following, that barrenness was kind of a shameful thing. It, in their day, it kind of, they thought, conveyed, well, God's judging you in some way by not giving you a child. And obviously that isn't true. Jesus spent some time in his ministry uh, conveying the truth about all of that. But nonetheless, Elizabeth was kind of felt that shame uh, of being a part of this community and having no children. And so what we saw and will see in her life, what we saw in Mary's life, the insignificant become very significant in God's story of redemption. People that experience lots of shame And maybe being pushed out of their society, Zechariah and Elizabeth become the people that are most talked about in the town. This young girl from some no-name town becomes the major part of this story of Christmas. Again, the insignificant becoming the most significant. We see God really showing every person has worth and value in my kingdom. And so we're picking that story up in Luke's gospel, chapter 1. We're actually jumping into verse 57. So now Elizabeth found out she's going to have a baby. Mary finds out she's going to have a baby. They get together and they meet, and the Holy Spirit goes on Elizabeth, and she starts singing praises and doing all kinds of stuff. Mary starts doing all that kind of stuff. And so their stories are being intertwined here together. That's an important fact what Luke is trying to bring out here. But Mary goes back home, and it's just Elizabeth and Zechariah. And in verse 57 of chapter 1, we see, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. So all that background has now led to verse 57, it's happened Elizabeth was pregnant, and Elizabeth gives birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared in her joy. Her status in the community has been flipped. In the beginning of uh, Luke's gospel, it says, Both of them, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were righteous in the sight of God, observing the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and both very old. And all of that, that last verse, I think it's verse 7 if you're following along in your Bible, but they were childless, is conveying shame. Not because, yeah, it stinks if you don't have a baby, but that shame was connected to their thinking about God's judgment on this family. But here in verse 58, we see her status has changed, her fortunes have shifted. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and now they're sharing in her joy. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, the, the sign of the covenant circumcision for Jewish people as followers of God. And they were going to name him after his father Zachariah, natural thing to do. But his mother spoke up and said no He is to be called John. Again, conveying the language used in verse 6, both of them were righteous in the sight of God. They desired to obey God. And so rather going with societal norms, this is what you always do. This would have been looked at as weird. You're going to name him John? That has no significance in your family whatsoever. But that's what Elizabeth said, and they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name then they made signs to his father to find out what he could, to find out what he would like to name the child. And Zachariah says he asked for a writing tablet. Obviously, he was mute. He couldn't speak. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Now, remember, an extended period of time has has elapsed since Zachariah went mute. It doesn't say what kind of guy Zachariah was. Maybe that was a blessing that Zachariah couldn't talk. Maybe he just got on people's nerves because he talked all the time and he and his wife didn't have to have any arguments. I don't know if it was good or bad, but as soon as he writes down the name John, we find out immediately his mouth was open, his tongue was set free, and he began to praise God. Now, what he says in praise of God doesn't happen until verse 67. Luke gives us a little bit more information about the reality that everybody is seeing here, God is up to something. Something new and something different is happening on the scene that hasn't been happening for a while. And again, this miraculous event of Zechariah writing John down and immediately being able to talk is showing to us, to them, to the reader, that God is involved in whatever's taking place here. That this story that's being written, that we call the redemptive story, it's God's story. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. It's just spreading everywhere. Everybody's beginning to hear that God is up to something. This awe and this wonder that people are experience, experiencing is deeply connected to the Christmas story. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking... What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. They knew God was going to do something. And, that, and that's, that matters. That fact matters that we see God's fingerprints all over this story. What we find in Luke chapter 1, now we didn't get it so much because we kept on doing different things each Sunday. But if you read the, entire, the entirety of Luke 1 and 2 and 3, What you'd read is a story about John the Baptist and his family. Then you'd read about Jesus. Then you'd read about John the Baptist. Then you'd read about Jesus. Because we're going to conclude chapter one this morning. And when you come back this evening, if you are, we're jumping into the story about Jesus' birth. And then if we'd keep on going, we'd jump back into the story in chapter three about John again. And then if you keep reading there, we'd jump back into the story of Jesus' baptism. And then chapter four and onward in Luke's gospel is all about Jesus. These stories are very intertwined because of what Luke is seeking to do in his gospel. What he, the good news he's talking about, that's what gospel means, good news, didn't just start when Elizabeth and Zechariah got pregnant. It started a long time ago. And what they're actually showing is God is showing up in a way he hasn't showed up in a long time. Now you got to remember There's a, what we call between, you know, in your Bible, it goes from Old Testament to New Testament. And depending on what kind of Bible you have, there might be some explanation about what's taking place in what we call the intertestamental period. The conclusion of the Old Testament, the Lord is no longer speaking through His prophets as He had done in the Old Testament. And when we break into the New Testament, now Matthew is the first gospel we get, But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all conveying this story of God breaking in once again on the scene. That 400 years in between there, there's a lot of history that happens there. It's not like God said, I'm going to take a 400-year break, you guys figure it out, and then comes back in the New Testament. God is still working through that time period. But what we see in this story is He's doing something new. He's doing something different. And John's story and Jesus' story is all about showing that God himself is a part of this story. That God is the one showing up. That his presence on planet earth is going to be renewed and felt in a way like it's never been felt before because God himself is going to dwell, walk Sit down at a table and eat among you. So Zechariah's response, you'll hear that word, praising God, throughout Luke's gospel, and we know Luke also wrote the book of Acts. That's like number two. It's a two-volume series, Luke and Acts. And you'll hear that refrain, praising God. People are always doing that, and what Luke is conveying in that phrase is that God is decisively acting in human history. It's not like that 400-year period of silence or that Old Testament, what we call the Old Covenant, God's scrapping all that and saying none of it worked. God is showing up again to say He is acting decisively in the world He created. His plans, His story of redemption is not going to be stopped. It's not going to be ruined. It's not going to be destroyed. No one's going to stop it from happening. Anytime you hear Zachariah's response is praise for God. Jesus heals this person, and all we do is hear them praising for praising God. Because what we're witnessing is God's kingdom advancing. And Christmas, what we're celebrating is Jesus inaugurating that kingdom. It's here, it's happening. And one day he's gonna fulfill it. And so really what we celebrate on Christmas is the promise that Jesus is going to come again. Because we believe God's plan, just like in Zechariah and Elizabeth's day, when they're like, I wonder if it's actually going to happen. All this stuff we read about, all this stuff we heard about, is it going to be fulfilled? You might have that same question. Maybe you grew up going to church. You've heard all these stories. You've celebrated lots of Christmases. Well, you're no different than them. Is God going to fulfill it? The scriptures are here to tell us, yes, he's done it before, and he's going to do it again. Because his story, his plan of redemption is not going to be thwarted. And what we see, evidence for that being true, is what we see in other people's lives when God intervenes in their life. We see it in Elizabeth's life, the lengths to which God will go to show us our value and worth. When Jesus says the last shall be first and the first shall be last. What we see happening throughout human history is God using the unlikely people to communicate his story. Elizabeth is one of those. Mary is one of those. The shepherds are some of those. All throughout God's story, we see it happening over and over and over again. And the proof that we have that we know God is going to fulfill just like he did then He's going to fulfill it again is what we witness in other people's lives. The transformation that takes place in somebody's life when they give their life to Christ is God intervening in their story to write a new story. You become a part, as we talked about two weeks ago, of this redemptive story. And instantly you find that you have worth and value. You find that you have purpose and meaning. That's what God gives as soon as you become a part of His redemptive story. That's one of the things that I have said we are struggling with mightily in the United States of America. You can go read any study, any statistic, and you don't need to go that far. Just look at your own family, your own friend group, your own coworkers, the amount of anxiety and depression we deal with today. Kids in as young as elementary school going to see a counselor every week because they're dealing with it. The amount of issues that we have in which people and I've tried to help people get into counseling, and they'll call and they'll say, "Well, I can get you in six months from now," because they're booked with people in therapy and counseling. The amount of which we've seen an increase in drug overdoses in our county, in our country the increase we've seen in suicide. What, what is the answer to those things? As soon as God intervenes in somebody's life, all of that changes. Maybe their life doesn't change, but their understanding of who, they're, who they are in light of God's mercy, in light of God's valuing them, They become a part of something much bigger than themselves. This individual thing that God does, this intervention that happens, often has a corporate meaning. God doesn't just do it for that person. He actually blesses many as a result. Jesus didn't just come for a select few, like his family. Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. They were waiting for the Messiah, who would come and restore their fortunes. But Jesus didn't just come for that, for that. Jesus came for the sins of the world. And all things, creation itself, reconciled in the work that He would do. That happens in our lives as well. God often does something corporate that was meant for the individual. God transforming Ted's life has had implications that I couldn't have foreseen. This is why we've talked about this, and I know that your favorite Christmas movie is going to be, It's a Wonderful Life, because I've told you why it is the most important movie of Christmas, and I'll watch it again tonight after evening service by myself, because nobody else wants to watch it with me, but the whole story is about how God uses one life for corporate meaning, and I, can, I could start just naming for you. When God changed that person's life, how it changed their marriage, how it changed their family, how it changed their relationships at work or with their friends. It transformed the way that they coach these kids. It's changed how they are a son or a daughter to their mom or dad. Everything about them changes. This is what God does in somebody's life. This is Elizabeth and Zachariah's standing in their community, was forever different. Mary's standing within her community is forever different. In fact, the entire world views her, this insignificant girl, at least through the culture's lens, this insignificant young girl, is now worldwide renowned because of her obedience to God. This is the Christmas story is giving us the the framework by which we can help people dealing with all that I have shared. The the brokenness, the pain, the suffering that happens as a result of the world in which we find ourselves leads to to Zechariah. Remember, he said, and Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he began to prophesy. And when he began to prophesy, verse 67 begins his praise of God. Whatever. Uh, was on his heart he begins to share and he begins that in verse 67 his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied and this is what he said verse 68 praise be to the Lord the God of Israel because he has come to his people and redeemed them now if you were doing some study you would see how that verse has lots of connections with Exodus you got to go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible Genesis, Exodus, and Zechariah simply restating something that was, stated back in, that was stated back in the book of Exodus when God redeemed, rescued, saved His people from slavery in Egypt, another 400-year period. Zechariah is apparently making some connections with that rescuing, that redeeming, with what God's doing right now through His Son, who is going to be preparing the way for the Lord, for God coming to earth. So He's bringing this into all of this New Testament language, this redemption that's going to happen. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Again, you've got to go back to the Old Testament for any of that to make sense of what God promised that He would do through the line of David. You need the Old Testament for all of this to make sense in the New Testament. God fulfilling His promises, as He said through His holy prophets of long ago. In those days, God spoke through the prophets. But in these days, God will speak through His Son. It says elsewhere in Scripture, salvation Being saved, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, Zechariah says, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. Old Testament, if you translate testament, it just means covenant. New Testament, if you translate testament, it means covenant. That God remembers the covenant, the promise he made with Israel, but the promise he made with all of humanity And providing a way of redemption. The oath he swore to our father Abraham. Now we're going back even further than David. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies. This is again language from the Exodus. Moses says, let my people go so that they could go and worship God. Rescue them so that they might go and worship God. And enable us to serve him without fear. And he continues in verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him, In all of our days. And you, my child, now he's speaking specifically about the baby who was born, whose name is John, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. This prophet, John the Baptist, is preparing the way for the Messiah who would come not just for Israel, but for the salvation of the world. For the purpose of not just freeing them from their enemies, who happened to be Rome at that time, but for the purpose of freeing them from sin, Satan, and death itself. The forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, again... That word mercy is important. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And Luke concludes this little portion because we're going to jump into the Jesus story tonight at 7 o'clock. He concludes this portion, and the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. So you don't get that till chapter 3. One of the things I think is so important for us is, especially now, as we know that the Scriptures are coming under attack and we can't believe anything in them, and uh, there's even churches and pastors out there that say, well, we don't really need the Old Testament anymore. We'll just utilize the New Testament. Everything I just read for you doesn't even make sense without the Old Testament, because God began doing something all the way back then in the book of Exodus. He was preparing us for being freed, being rescued, being redeemed. Yes, from Egypt, we see that story in Israel, but from something even more powerful than the empire that nobody even knows about anymore, sin and Satan and death itself. We are reading about promises that God fulfilled. So imagine hearing this for over 400 years. God is not speaking through His prophets like He did before, and you're just a believer living in that 400-year gap wondering, is it ever going to happen? Is He ever really going to fulfill what He said He would do? And now you're Elizabeth and Zechariah, and you're like, Something's happening. Something big is taking place. and Now you're the uh, community they live in in the Judean Hill countries. God is doing something crazy right now. We're not sure what it is. The Christmas story is telling us that God is worthy of our trust. He's faithful to his promises. And that God operates fundamentally not out of anger and wrath, as some would say, As some like to claim the Old Testament God, I don't like that one because he's really angry and wrathful. The New Testament reveals the kind of God that they're talking about in the Old Testament. Zechariah uses the word tender mercy. Elsewhere we just read about the mercy of God. It is fundamental to God's operating and acting decisively in human history. For God so loved the world, not because God so hated the world, because God wanted to burn the world up. Yes, God is angry at sin, and the problem is we're not as angry as he is about sin. We ought to be angrier about it, because do you see what it does to people's lives? It destroys it. So yeah, God's angry about sin, but God's fundamental behavior The way He operates, because of His tender mercy, on our behalf, while we rejected Him, while we're yet sinners, He sends His Son, and He breaks into human history. God sees the brokenness throughout the world, and He says, I'm going to do something about it. And while He will bring judgment on sin and on righteousness and on holiness, and I'm thankful that He will because His justice is supreme and it is completely right, and I see all the injustice in our world, and I say, God, please do something about it. And He says, I have. I've spoken to all of humanity on that Christmas morning. And what I'm preparing all of you for is a life of worship and service of me because I am coming back to reconcile all things back to myself once and for all. I've done it before, and I'm going to do it again. And so now we're in that waiting period. That's what Advent is, waiting. We're in that period where we're waiting for that ultimate rescue, that ultimate redemption, that ultimate reconciliation of all things back to how God originally intended them to be when he says, for it is good. He created and is good. He created and is good. So Zachariah says, and he's simply repeating what they did in Exodus, the whole purpose of all of it, this whole rescue, let my people go so they might go out in the wilderness and worship you. In Exodus, the fundamental nature of who we are, the essence of who we are, as this community brought together through the work of Jesus Christ, is one of service and worship. Now, we talked about all that when we did our sermon series of Going Deeper. We used the nice church word that we call sanctification. Maturing as Christians, holiness, God setting us apart. This life of service and worship doesn't mean that that we just spend our entire day at church because we know the church isn't this building. What's the most important thing that we can do for God? Something all of us can do. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what service and worship to God looks like. How are you going to love God with all of that when you go to work on Tuesday? When you go to be with that group of people? That's all that we're talking about here. It's not... I mean, I'm glad you're going to come back on today. Like, two church services in one day? What's gotten into you people? But what he's talking about is a way of life. Our behavior, our language, the way I interact with my wife, the way I interact with my children. He's talking about our way of life. That when we begin to operate in a way that that we realize why we're made, what we're made for, instantly we get purpose and meaning. So wherever you are, if your attitude at your job is, I hate this place, I wish it would, well, I won't say that. I shouldn't say that because we are live streaming here, so I'm not going to say we should burn it to the ground or something. Um, So we'll delete that, edit that part out but your attitude conveys something to everybody you're around at work. And what all of that Zachariah is saying is that we've been redeemed, we've been rescued for a life of worship to God. And so our entire lives become one of, of worship to Him. We went to visit uh, Elmer and Gladys Davis who are members of church, but physical things, they can't be here. So we took the kids there and another group of us went there And they told us that sometimes they just sit in their living room. They don't turn the TV on. They don't listen to anything. And they just kind of start talking about the past. They just start talking about their life, their kids, their grandkids, life before they were married, life when they got married. They just start talking about their past for the purpose of realizing all that they've been gifted. And in the midst of dealing with some major physical challenges, You know what I heard? Joy. Love. Hope. Peace. All of that comes because they understand why they were made and what they were made for. And it was kind of like they're giving this offering back to God. Thanks, God, for that time in our life when we were 50 years old and this took place. We deal with a culture that struggles to find any meaning in life whatsoever. Christmas really gives us something different. They struggle with having any purpose. What's it all for? Just getting up and going to work every day? That's what life is all about? Well, if that's how you view it, I guess, that is pretty depressing. Because you hate your job. But what if God's called you to something more? What if your life is about something else? What if your actions have such a profound effect that God's going to use you to do something beyond yourself? There's something bigger going on than you, something bigger going on than Abraham and Sarah's story. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, if they could only know what God would do through your faithfulness, God says, hey, Abraham, take your family and get up and start walking. I'm going to show you a place. And, and through you, I'm going to do something amazing that seemed unheard of. You know what Abraham did? He said, everybody, pack it up. Let's go. That first step that he took, the redemptive story starts being written. The faithfulness of Zechariah and Elizabeth. No, we're not going to call them Zachariah. We're, not. we're going against all societal norms here. John. Zechariah's mouth instantly opened. They took that step. God starts rewriting that story. That's what God's offering to us. The brokenness that we see in our world isn't going to be changed because everybody gets super excited about Christmas. Because guess what? On the 27th or the 26th, depending if you took off, the job you hate... You're going back to it. So there's got to be something more than just that day. God's made us to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him with our lives. This past Advent, uh, Jess and I and Lily and Leo do an Advent devotional, and so every day we're doing a devotional. They have one for kids. We have one for us. But then usually at the end of the week, we'll go through each day together. And this particular one has a little ornament that you put up on the tree. And for us, that's extremely important. Because as much as we love doing all the traditions about Christmas, and we have lots of fun ones, the one thing I want my two girls to know Is that they were made to know and to love God. And Christmas says, This is how much God loves you. The lengths to which He will go to show you that. That kind of God's worthy of our trust and offering our life back to Him. So I don't know what they're going to do. Maybe she'll be a chef. Lily, you want to be a chef? No? Maybe she'll be an engineer a teacher, or the hardest job in the world, a stay-at-home mom. It doesn't matter. Wherever God takes her, her life is one of worship and service to the King of kings and Lord of lords. That can really change somebody's outlook on life. When you actually, maybe for the first time, understand why you were made and what you were made for. Christmas has the power to do that because it's not a day. It's about the one who came to rescue us, to save us, to actually make us into a new people. He's creating a new humanity. We know what humans look like, but we also know what redeemed humans look like and you'll know them by their love. We demonstrate a life that is different than a lot of the interactions we have. That happens when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And God takes our story and flips it upside down and uses your life to impact everybody else's life. You have an opportunity to experience that and you have an opportunity to convey that because tomorrow you're going to celebrate Christmas. And I don't know what your family looks like. I don't know what your groups look like. But I bet you there's somebody there that needs this good news. And God's taking the past. Our remembering of this story gets us ready for when He comes again. He's worthy of our trust. He's done it before, and He'll do it again. And the crazy thing is he loves using us because of his tender mercy invites us into something amazing that he wants to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story that at least throughout the year, it's one that we all get excited about, we wait for, we spend really a whole month or maybe even skipping Thanksgiving and spend a whole lot of time thinking about a story we've heard over and over and over again, and yet it still has the power to change and transform lives. God, thank you for showing us our value and worth and the extent to which you will go to do that by breaking into human history in the way that you did, Lord, by changing people's lives that seemed insignificant. And, Lord, now we talk about them at least once a year. God, thank you for that promise being true of our lives as well. That you have rescued a people. That as Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Jesus came and said, these are mine. And he's defeated sin and Satan and death itself. Lord, I pray that as Jesus Christ came as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, even at his birth, that he would be that in our lives. And Father, that you would use us to serve you, to love you no matter where we go, no matter what we do. And in that way, Lord, may we experience the value, the meaning, the purpose of who we are and who you created us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.